Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Ruth chapter 4. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land... Then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and, you know, keep the land in the family. Then I then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I can't do it. Now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Melon. And with the land, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Melon, to be my wife. This way, she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law, who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own the neighbor women said now at last Naomi has a son again and they named him Obed he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David this is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez Perez was the father of Hezron Hezron was the father of Ram Ram was the father of Amadadab. Amadadab was the father of Nashan. Nashan was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Reading from God's word. So, here we are at the end of our four weeks. And uh, my wife and I are a little bit sad. It has gone too quickly, and we have really loved uh, getting to know so many of you and the privilege of coming and opening up God's Word. Um, it has been uh, a really great, uh, a great opportunity. I've really enjoyed it, and thank you guys so much for your kindness and your hospitality. Uh, we leave on uh, Tuesday, and uh, we will miss you. So uh, if you could just... just Tell Raphael that things went really well. And I'll give you money 
and maybe he'll invite us back someday. Um, but we really did um, have a, a great time and counted a privilege. We, had, uh, we, we did some stuff while we were here. We got to see Spain. We had our kids, uh, two, only uh, one of my sons and his wife came uh, to visit us. And so this was, we were on a drive up along the coast. And uh, some of you met Logan and Melani uh, last week. Be, be praying for them because uh, this is a, this, we, we kind of want them as a ministry couple, uh, but they're not sure yet what they're doing. And so we keep praying and, and trying and trying to shut any other doors that might be opening for them, um, uh, all secretly behind the scenes, manipulatively and all of that. So you do it nice, you do it righteously, you pray for them and maybe God will open up some doors. We had another picture. This was, um, this was uh, just a great time having uh, churros con chocolate. I mean, fried dough and chocolate. How do you people do this? How do you, how, how are you all not like all just like, all, <laughs> I don't even understand it. So this is, this was great. This was, and what was this other thing? The drink, hun? What was that one? Corchata. So good. Oh my goodness. We're bringing that back. All right. Uh, next one we have, uh, we saw uh, one of the, the trips we went to. What was the next one I gave you? Did I give you another one? Oh yeah, this is, we had this. Is, thank you guys so much for taking us out. Went out on the boat, had a good time, and had paella. Paella. This is the reason for siesta. We figured that out. We had a big old paella, and then I needed like a two-hour nap. And I was like, wait, paella for lunch? This is why you're not supposed to have paella for dinner, because then how will you stay up until? 12 o'clock at night eating dinner and having coffee like we've seen now in Spain, which uh, it's been great. All right, and then um, this is uh, where we start today. So, some years ago, I had come across a very old sermon from John Piper. I don't know if uh, many of you are familiar with John Piper, but uh, he is definitely worth uh, listening to and watching some of his sermons and his his focus on the Bible, and his, he's got these little web things he does on the Bible, which are absolutely stellar. Anyway, a very old sermon. I think it might be from the 80s or something like that, or the 90s. He was speaking at an Urbana, Urbana missions conference to a whole group of young people. And I think it was, I don't know, 10,000 young people, some crazy number like that, one of these giant conferences. And he, he had a sermon that became known as the Seashell Sermon. Uh, that's kind of what people call it, even all of these years later. Uh, people still know it and remember it. And many people know it and remember it because it changed the whole trajectory of their lives. And so you can listen to the whole sermon online. You can look it up. It's uh, worth uh, you doing. uh, And I think all of us would benefit from it. I just wanted to cut out just a little tiny clip and read it to you. Uh, He was telling the story about two folks, two older women who had recently died in his congregation. He said, recently we got word at our church that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get a few minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. 
With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. And so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What splash will you make today that will ripple across the pond, will ripple across the lake, will ripple far out of your sight to accomplish things, to do things that you never imagined possible? So, so far in the book of Ruth, we have journeyed with a few widows, two in particular, through some difficult days. And those days required hope and great courage. And I won't be able to review the whole of it. I know some of you, this is your first Sunday with us in the book of Ruth. I won't be able to review everything, but just by way of context, these were very difficult days. In chapter one, we saw that these were the days when the judges ruled. And that's an ominous and a terrible time. Go back and read the book of Judges, and you will see that when Ruth starts, it starts in a very, very heavy, very negative way. And then we find out that there was a famine in the land. And at first, this guy, Elimelech, he takes his family and he leaves the famine. And all of us, we look at that and we go, that makes sense. That's good. That's good plan. And this guy's doing whatever it takes to take care of his family, except that the famine was God's judgment on Israel. And it's never wise to be running from God's plan or his judgment. And that's where we found Elimelech and his two sons. And all three of them ended up dying, leaving Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. And only one of which, Ruth, came back with her. And then in chapter 2, we saw that even in the darkest of days, that God's people can do God's work. And so we saw it in verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. And then, and then Naomi says, the Lord bless him. The man is our close relative. He's one of our redeemers. And so we saw that, that Boaz had created this field of Boaz, we called it. This place of justice and kindness and mercy and righteousness. And my challenge to you was that you can do that as well. You can create a field of Boaz wherever you go. You can bring the kingdom of God here to earth. Everywhere you go, a field of Boaz. And Boaz, he doesn't take any credit for it. He says, you, have, you Ruth, have come under the wings of Yahweh. You have come and, and you have let Yahweh spread his protective wings over you. But we know, as we read the story, that Yahweh's protective wings are Boaz. And the field that he had created. And because of that, Naomi was eating, Ruth was eating, and they were safe. They were secure. They finally could breathe deeply. God had begun to lift the curse and to alleviate their anxiety and their pain and their suffering. That was just chapter two, halfway through the book. But she, at that point, Naomi drops a little bit of a bomb on us and she says, that's one of our close relatives. He's one of our redeemers. But we don't really figure out much more about this. If we don't know the story of the Bible, we don't even know. There's only mentioned a few other times in the scriptures this idea of a kinsman redeemer. A lot of translations, they go all in different ways. They call it a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, the goel, all these different ideas. But, but, but Boaz is someone special to the family, so much so that in chapter 3, Naomi comes up with this crazy, very risky idea, and she sends Ruth over to the threshing floor, all dolled up, and at first it looks a little bit scandalous, especially because the whole Moabite thing, and then we find out, nope, this is all above board, and this is Ruth and Naomi taking initiative and saying, God, we're going to put everything we have into this. We are going to we are going to act like everything is on us and we're going to pray and trust like everything is on him. And we are going to attempt great things for God because we expect great things from God. That was chapter 3. And it was there on the threshing floor. Boaz woke up, just happened to wake up in that moment as God woke him in the middle of the night and he said, Who are you? 
there's a woman sleeping here at my feet in the threshing floor. And this is scandalous. This could be a, a big thing. This could be a problem. Who is this? She says, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a redeemer of my family. There it is again. Redeemer of our family. Spread your garment. Spread those wings of Yahweh over me. Now, we're in chapter 4. I've just read it for you, but a couple things I want to highlight. In verse 1, we see the same theme again and again, and I'm going to summarize a little bit of the whole book and do some stuff just about the chapter and then kind of wrap everything up here for us, I hope. In verse 1, it says, just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. Just then. This is a theme we've seen quite a few times already. Just then. The language that the narrator uses for all of this is to constantly remind us that God is actually at work even when you can't see him at work. Just then, it just so happens. Just then, it, he, he shows up at the gate. He comes right from the threshing floor. He shows up at the gate, and the kinsman redeemer, the other guy, happens to be there. Because what we learned in chapter 3 is that there was another kinsman redeemer a little bit closer. This guy. The friend. Look in verse, the middle of verse 1. It says, Come here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. This is interesting. I, I found something out as I was studying this recently. This translation says friend. Some of your other translations, it, it'll say something else. In fact, going all the way back in history to find out how this word was translated, this little phrase, you've realized no one knows how to translate it. The phrase here doesn't really mean friend. It doesn't really mean the guy. It is, he's nameless. We're not actually given his name. In a book that tells us so many details about so many people and so many names, it's curious. This guy, he doesn't even get his name in the story. He's actually, we could just call him, he's Mr. Whoever. That's who he is. The, the best you can do is to call him friend or buddy or partner um, or the guy, the, the nameless one, actually. We can just call him the nameless one or Mr. Whoever. Even the way the narrator writes it is to let us know that he's the contrast to Boaz. Mr. Whoever here happens to show up. That's about the only good thing this guy's done so far, is he just happened to show up at the time that Boaz needed him to show up. Then in verse 5, when it says, he told, then Boaz told him, of course, you purchased the land from Naomi, and that requires you to marry Ruth, the Moabite. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And Mr. Whoever, unsurprisingly, says, oh, then I can't do it. Now here's the other thing. We don't exactly know why. We don't know how this was going to jeopardize his own estate. But it probably had something to do with the fact that if Ruth has a child, there's only one of the redeemers who is willing to let that child be reckoned to a dead man, Elimelech. Elimelech's two sons are dead. Malon was the son that Ruth had been married to. This estate is going to go to Malon's descendants. Malon doesn't have any, unless, of course, Ruth gets pregnant. If Ruth gets pregnant, has a kid. This, does, this kid doesn't get reckoned to Boaz. The property doesn't go to Boaz's family. In fact, he might take some of Boaz's estate but here's the real beautiful part about this. In the ancient world, especially here at this time in the history, the, the, the idea of the afterlife was fuzzy at best. What was going to happen to us? Where were we going to go? Even Job said something about he knows his Redeemer lives. And that was, that was old. That was back there. But we're not 100% sure there's something. Abraham's bosom. Where are these people? What's going on? How do they experience? We know a lot more about it from the New Testament side of things. But one of the ways that you experienced immortality in that day was if your kids continued the family name, if your genes, if your DNA continued. And if, it, if they didn't, it was a tragedy. This was one of the worst curses that could happen is that your family line would be snuffed out. And Malon's almost is. Limelech's line is almost completely gone. There's only one hope. And that's that his, his wife, Ruth, is going to get pregnant by a close relative and bring in the Leverett Law that we talked about last week. Now, Mr. Whoever, 
Philistines can't do it. But Boaz, he does it. He's willing to. He's willing to put his, his hat in the ring and say, I'm actually willing to do this. I'm willing to jeopardize. I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to make the sacrifice for the good of the clan. Not his own, but for the good of the clan. These are all deeply rooted in, in Israelite theology of the land and God's gift to them and their, their stewards of the land. It's all God's land, but they're stewards of the land. And all of this is all wrapped up in here from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, all really great stuff. I can't get into all the details, but the point of it is Boaz was willing. And this is something we've seen throughout the whole of this letter, the whole of the, this story is that Boaz's generosity is off the charts. Everywhere he shows up, he is going beyond what the law requires. He's doing even more. You know, sometimes we do this. We, we know exactly what is needed and exactly what is required, and we think that that's far enough. But that's not what, what faithful loyalty is all about. That's not what chesed is all about. That's not what the example of Boaz, you know, some people, we talk about giving sometimes um, at the church, right? And people are like, well, you know, the tithe, that was an Old Testament thing. Who knows what the New Testament says? You know, it's kind of all over the place. Well, this is what I can assure you. Take the principles of Boaz in, and in light of the cross, and I can assure you that tithing is the very minimum that Jesus' followers can do. That's what the law calls us to. To give 10% is what, is what the law says. You know what Boaz does? He goes beyond the law. You know what Jesus does? He goes beyond the law. He takes the heart of it. He takes the essence of it. Now think of that in every area of your life. That's just one kind of very practical because we get a number on it. We know what that looks like. We can measure that one. But think about it in every other way. How far do you sacrifice? How far are you willing to go to help another person? At what point does the risk become too great for you? I told you the story last week about that young couple that was going to be adopted, going to be fostering this, this 16-year-old girl. That was, that was Logan and Melani. That was my kid who's going to be doing that. And, you know, he's, they're only a few years ahead of them. I didn't want to embarrass them while they were here. I'll embarrass them when they're not here. I'm so proud of them. And, and I was telling someone who used to go to our church years ago, I met them at the gym, and I was telling them the story that what, what they were into, what this 22-year-old couple was into with this 16-year-old troubled kid in foster care. And you know what my friend told this, this person that used to come to the church? You know what they said? Well, that sounds like a very bad idea. It's a lot of risk. There's a lot of things that could go wrong there. Have they really thought it through? That's the follower of Jesus. That's our first response. Fear and caution and risk assessments. The widow gives her two mites at the temple. Jesus says, that's a story we're going to tell. You know what was cool about that story? Jesus told us she dropped in all she had to live on. Dave Ramsey, he would have said, bad idea. If you know Dave Ramsey, he's one of these like financial, Christian financial guys. Anyway, you know, Larry Burkett, I don't know who you guys remember. There's, there's always Christians who are saying, this isn't what we got to do. Jesus is like, yeah, she took a risk. That's the kind of generosity that we see throughout the story. Now, then down in verse 13, Mr. Whoever, he can't do it. So he disappears from the story. We never hear from him again. We don't know his name. Probably won't see him in heaven. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. One of the mysterious things so far about the text has been only a few things have been ascribed to the Lord. We've seen his invisible hand working in circumstances. But Ruth had been married to Malon. Ten years. Never got pregnant. And now we see suddenly why. God was preventing it. God works in the biology of people. He works in the mysterious details. The coincidences of this life. And then the women said to Naomi, praise the Lord, verse 14, who has now provided a redeemer. May this child be famous. And all of the descendants and the geographies that are about to be mentioned, all of these things are significant in their insignificance. And this is an important part of, of understanding what Ruth is all about. It's almost the exact opposite of the book of Judges. 
In 18, he, they list the genealogical record, Perez, Hezron, Ram. And by the way, if you don't know how to pronounce a biblical name, just say it confidently. Most people don't know how to pronounce them. That's largely what I do. Sometimes I pronounce them wrong, but differently, like multiple times. And so just say it confidently. And people will be like, oh, I guess that's how you say it. It's Boaz. 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 Doesn't matter. Just say it confidently. And you go, you look through the list, you're like, yeah, well, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. David did that. That's wrong. You see, you, you said that not all of them were insignificant, but that's, David is significant because of what's about to happen. The narrator already knows why David is significant. Did you know Jesse, his name here, right? He had eight sons. The prophet Samuel said, hey, could you bring your sons out? God is going to, we're going to anoint one of your sons. This is going to be like, one of your kids, you're going to be the new king. What does Jesse do? He brings seven of his sons. Not David. David was insignificant even to his father. Well, not his heavenly father. The whole of this story is about the insignificance of these people. How unimportant they were. It's Bethlehem, it's not Jerusalem. It's Boaz. You know what we know about Boaz? Nothing other than what's given to us right here. It's Ruth, a Moabitess. So often people, they, they point to the pastor, they point to the prophet, they point to the leader, they point to the bishop, they point to whoever it is that has, you know, it's the, it's the important people in the Christian circle. This isn't that, the book of Ruth says, no, that isn't the way God works. He works through you, and he works through you, and he works through you, and he does it in the most mysterious and profound and powerful ways. We get to the story, and we get to Boaz. Here's a pic. We went to, I told you, we went to uh, Sagraja, uh, La Sagraja, Sagrada. I should say that just confidently, but you'll all know if I'm saying it wrong. Right, we went to that, this, is, this was, my son said this was one of the most beautiful buildings he had ever seen. I hope you guys have seen it. It's a Gaudi building. It's, it's awesome. It's mind-blowing. It's so deeply biblical. It is so deeply biblical. This guy actually really had such a handle on, on the gospel. And, and really, I don't know anything else about him, but I do know his architecture. He, he crushed it, man. This thing, it's not quite finished yet, right? And so you might know that as well. It's the only massive cathedral, modern cathedral ever being built right now in the world, and, and it's not done. But here, there's a column when you walk in. It's the next, I think I, think, I gave you the slide. With, yes, look. You can almost see it here. Boaz. We're walking into this church, and the genealogy of Jesus is carved in stone in this modern cathedral. And there's Boaz, an insignificant nobody. Now, he's locked up here in a chain, uh, and they say it's because, you know, they're trying to represent how, how sin has gripped us. But it's also the main pillar in the middle of the doors. I think they're trying to get people to stop touching it. But anyway, this is, this is, this is Boaz, insignificant in story, but used by God in an incredibly powerful way. And what we see in this is that God provided through this whole storyline a redeemer. He provided exactly what Ruth and exactly what Naomi needed, a redeemer. So what is this, this redeemer? We want to wrap our heads. Whenever this word shows up, God is using it when he rescues people from slavery. When, it, when he does that, he said, it, it said that he redeemed them. He rescues them from slavery. If someone falls destitute, a family member, a relative, someone, an Israelite falls destitute and they have to sell their, their property. When you come along and you help them get their property back, when you get them out of slavery, when you get them out of indentured servitude, when you help restore them to their family legacy, their property, you've redeemed them. That's how the word shows up. I told you Job, he spoke of a redeemer who would rescue him from suffering and from heartache. That's a redeemer. When the guilty are shown kindness instead of judgment, hear what I said there? When the guilty are shown kindness instead of judgment, redeemed. 
People are even described as being redeemed from death. The one who rescues or who saves, it's the one who gives us hope. That is the Redeemer. And so in our story, Ruth is a Redeemer. And Boaz is a Redeemer. And the author says, Obed, the kid, the baby, is a Redeemer. And we start to kick this word around in all of these different ways. And all of these point to an even greater Redeemer, which to our narrator makes perfect sense because they know that this is a story of King David. And why is it that the narrator would look to King David as a Redeemer? Because what David was going to do was going to bring an end to the misery of the days of the judges. He is going to establish the monarchy. He is going to fight for justice. He is going to protect the poor. He is going to help the widow. He is going to look after the weak and the foreigner. And he is going to do all of these things. And he is going to establish this incredible kingdom of Israel. And so the narrator knows what Ruth and Boaz didn't. They thought that, that, that Naomi was being redeemed by Obed. She was going to be taken care of in her old age. And they were right, but it was so much more than that. Something they never could have seen. That King David was going to save a nation. He was going to redeem it. But of course, we know even so much more. There's another vantage point. Because sadly, the redemption that came through David didn't last long. By the time Solomon, his son, split the kingdom up, civil war erupted. One generation after David, the story of the judges is largely going to get repeated in the story of the monarchy. Because humanity does this over and over and over again. Cycles. God raises someone up. He tries to redeem. He tries to deal with the issues that are going on. And humanity, after a sh very, very short time, all of our best laid plans end up failing. So not even the promised kingdom of David gave us the redemption we need because hope was crushed once more. The, the Israelites never could quite make a righteous kingdom. Why? Because of sin. Sin in all of our hearts. You know, we read this story and we forget it's, it's their sin, but it's our sin as well. We are them. They are us. And sin is too formidable an enemy for humanity. That's the reality. That's why the great, great, great grandson of Ruth and Boaz came into the world, King Jesus, heir of King David. He rides into Jerusalem and the whole of the city busts out and they say, blessed is the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. The king of Israel. But you see, they only saw one vantage point as well. They saw Jesus coming in and kicking the Romans out. And Jesus disappointed all of them. And he didn't give them what they wanted. Instead, he gave them what they needed. And soon he would lay his life down. And he would say, I'm going after the sin issue. I'm going after the thing that separates you from each other and from your God. The thing that started in the garden. I'm going after that. And I'm going to give you access back to your heavenly Father through the sacrifice of my own life. And he reverses everything. He left the perfect field of heaven to go into the broken field in Israel. We see, we see Ruth. She turns her back on Moab. Jesus turns his back on heaven for just a spell to embrace Moab. I mean, think of this. I've told you, Naomi, Ruth, she's rewriting her history. Lot's wife, she went to Sodom. She couldn't, she couldn't look. She wasn't supposed to. She was supposed to look to the Holy Land. Instead, she, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Jesus, he, he takes his eyes off heaven and he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He goes to Moab. He goes to Israel. He goes back into the days when judges ruled. He turned his, his, his gaze away from the Father and fixed it on us. He turned his, his face away from the, field, the wings of the Father that he, he had full refuge and access to in all of heaven. And he turns and he gives that up, empties himself to come for us. He's, he's doing everything backward. He's, because he's, he's undoing what Adam did. He's the second Adam. He's, he's rewriting the story of humanity's fall. He is going to live the perfect life and then he is going to die in our place. How many royal people have done that for you? How many kings have done that for you? Jesus promises forgiveness and the power of the Spirit so that we get to start experiencing victory over our sins. He promises to be with us in this fight against injustice in this world. He says we don't have to now run and hide or fight others or be harsh or judgmental or crushed by guilt or any of those things. The true king laid down his life and he gave us the true hope from heaven. And throughout this short little book, we have seen this theme of redemption over and over and over again. So he tells us, my friends, listen, you are redeemable. You are. You are. Because all are. Ruth went from a Moabitess to an Israelite, a daughter-in-law to better than seven sons. She was the widow of Malon to wife of Boaz. She was a poor widow begging in a field to the great-grandmother of King David. She went from despised outsider to ancestor of the Savior of the world. You read Matthew's introduction to Jesus. Guess who shows up? All of these questionable women. Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba. Matthew can't even name her. The wife of Uriah the Hittite, he says. He doesn't know what he's doing there. More and more Christians are living today with this truncated form of Christianity. We have condescension toward other people. We, we turn up other, our nose up to others who aren't in our circle. We look down on people who drive cars that we don't drive or in communities that we don't live in or we look down on, on how they maintain things and what they do and we don't, and we don't, we don't, we, we, our pity comes through with an arrogant twist. This is what happens when we don't think of ourselves as sinners, as Moabites needing redemption. The arrogance of Christians is one of the most off-putting things that the world has ever seen. And it's because we don't see this, we don't look at this and we say, we're the Moabites. We're the ones who need redemption. And it cost Jesus his life to secure it. In our country, Christians affiliate with their particular political party. They think social transformation is going to come from these corrupt political parties. Some can't even distinguish anymore between their party's platforms and biblical Christianity. This is a seriously truncated version of Christianity. We offer the world the hope of redemption found in Christ alone. That's what we do. We experience it, and when you experience it, you will not be able to stop telling people about him. And your past is redeemable by the righteousness and compassion of your present life. We see this in Ruth, right? Her lineage, her past, it's filled with misery and heartache and wickedness. We spoke about this a little bit before, but it was Lot's wife. That's her, that's her history, Lot's wife. Lot's daughters who got their dad drunk, slept with him, produced offspring to create the Moabites. We, this is all from last week. This is, this is who Ruth was born into, the, the Moabite women who tried to, to lead Israelites astray as they're wandering, who refused to give them food, refused to give them so, so any shelter, re refused to protect them. Ruth is undoing all of that through the power of a life dedicated to Yahweh. She's undoing, she's rewriting the story. You can no longer just talk about the Moabites that way once you meet Ruth. Because she is undoing rewriting 
redeeming the past. And there is not one drop of pain in any of our lives that God will not redeem. Not one drop. It doesn't matter what we have done. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter the mistakes that we have made or the abuses that we have endured. God can redeem it all. Are we interested in, in getting justice done or doing justice? Isn't it amazing that Lady Liberty, Lady Justice, she's blindfolded, she has scales, and she carries a sword? That's getting justice. That's a, that's a small part of doing justice. There's so much more to justice than people getting what they deserve. God forbid we get what we deserve. He did forbid it through the sacrifice of Christ. He poured out the wrath of God, the wrath on sin on Jesus. He endured it so we would not have to. This is the faithful love that we're talking about. This chesed, this, this is the kind of a love that acts. Listen, this isn't the kind of thing that you can talk about as a follower of Jesus. It's not the thing that you can just say, oh yeah, yeah, we ought to love each other. Oh, we got to be connected. We got to be nice to each other. James says, what kind of a faith is that? It's meaningless. If you see someone in need and you do nothing about it, shame on you. That's what he tells us. Why? Because I said, this kind of faithful loyalty acts. It does stuff. It gets busy about the business of bringing God's kingdom here on earth in very real and practical ways. Go back and read James. See what he said. James reads like he's, he's been spending time in Ruth. Like he was hanging out with Boaz. They understand that we get to live in this life with a reckless kind of generosity. A reckless kind of generosity. And in doing this, we get to take what's happened in the past and we get to redeem it now in this moment for the future. But we can also create a new redemptive storyline. Ruth does. She makes a clean, solid break. Not only does she grant in a sense, immortality to, Im, to Elimelech and Malon in their world, in their culture. But she led, her actions led to the saving of the nation of Israel from the dark days of the judges. What she did, did that. She would have never known that. She would have never seen that. But you can create a new redemptive storyline. She would have never had any imagination that it would have led to Jesus. That her actions in that day and in that story would have led to the birth of the Savior of the world. This would have blown their minds. Could you imagine how terrified they would have been every time they misplaced Obed? He went running and they're like, I lost the heir to the Son of God. Like, you'd have to go, imagine losing him, trying to find, letting him fall down the steps. The pressure, she didn't know. But it's what happened. We were at Malaga, the cathedral there, and there is a, you, some of you have probably seen this, not a great shot of it, but you notice the one tower here isn't complete. And that's kind of what it's famous for. They have a name for it. They call it uh, the one-armed lady or La Manquita. It's a cathedral that was, was, and so we went down there, we visited, and it just struck me, like, this is what's going on in our day. This, they, they, they never finished it. It's a work in progress. They're actually probably never going to finish it. But, but this is what God is doing. God has begun to build a temple. He calls us his, his building. And each one of us plays a part in it, but it isn't quite done yet. And I'm thinking about this building. I'm like, it's a picture of who we are right now. God, he is, he is building us up, but it isn't quite done yet. The work isn't completed. You have a part to play. You have a brick to lay. You have a work that has to get done as God continues to build his people into his temple here on earth. The presence of God. That's what we are, right? This is, we know that. We say that the church is, there is, it's not the building, it's the people of God. We know that. He's building it. And that means there are still bricks out in the quarry that need to be brought in. There are still people far from God. Will you create a new redemptive storyline? How much of David's courage 
is because of Ruth. Have we thought about that? Sometimes we think about the story, we're like, oh, this is just a story about a woman in a womb. Good thing she could have babies. That was her value. Really? You can't see the life of David is, is the courage that he had in facing Goliath? Is that rooted in the stories of Ruth and Boaz? Was it the example that they passed down through their family line? David's courage. Is it he sh she shaped the next generation that shaped the next generation that shaped. Guess what that's called in the New Testament? That's discipleship. That's what Jesus did. He shaped the next generation. Are you doing that? Are you reaching the people far from God, what we call evangelism? Are you telling them about the love of Jesus? Are you working with the, with the young Christians around us so that you can create a new storyline, a redemptive storyline? Our role as redeemed children of God who are saved by Messiah Jesus, will be carried on by those that we lead and develop now. Are you doing that? The church is one generation away in any given location from being gone. That's the beauty and the urgency of what we are to do here. Will you be able to see your spiritual children and grandchildren. Can you see it to the fourth generation? Could you set a goal to see your great, great grandchildren? And I'm, yeah, you're, you're, it's great to see your great, your physical great grandchildren. That'd be nice. Live long enough, you get to see your great grandchildren, gift from God for not killing your kids, something like that, right? That's why you have grandchildren, because like you got rewarded by God for not killing your kids in their teenage years. But but what happens later, right? But we, we think about it with only our kids, but what about your spiritual grandchildren? Who have you led to Christ? Who have you developed in the faith? Who has turned around and led someone to Christ? Because that's your spiritual child and the person they've led to Christ and developed is your spiritual grandchild. The Bible talks of four generations that you could see. Paul, Timothy, entrusted to others who entrusted it to others. Do you have spiritual, do you even have spiritual children? Never mind spiritual grandchildren, but think about the beauty of, of seeing your spiritual great-great-grandkids. People that you have developed, that you have built into. You have created a new redemptive storyline from this moment. And you don't know where it's going to end. This will create these, these ripples. We taught, we hung out with the, with the young people there on Friday night. It's amazing telling their stories, listening to their stories. You know what they're doing? They're creating ripples. Ripples of redemption. The leaders who are investing, Carlos and others, they're creating ripples of redemption. The kids, I talked to one young person, he's, he's, he's working on his sister. Working on his sister. She doesn't know Jesus. I'm trying to figure out how to help her and my family come to know Jesus. Kids in his 20s. Whoever led him to Christ, that's their, child, that's their spiritual child. Sister will be their spiritual great-grandchild. Do you see this? Do you feel this? Is this a value that you have? A new redemptive storyline. You have craft day coming up. Is this so that you guys can hang out and make stuff? And get to know each other? That's nice. Is it a redemptive storyline yet? Are there people in your circles who you could bring in and invite to meet your family? The young people, they went down to the, the, the beach to play volleyball where they made new friends. They invite those friends out to tell them more about Jesus. The child shall lead the way. Are we doing that? You have your Bible studies. Most of us know more about the Bible than we're already applying. Bible studies are amazing. Don't get me wrong. I love studying the Bible. To what end? To the end for which you are here, to create redemptive ripples. Study the Bible. Bring people out. Introduce them. And you might say, yeah, but I don't know any people who are far from God anymore. All of my friends are now Christians. Fix that. Fix that. Change that. 
Start to, to find ways that you can make a splash in the kingdom and send ripples, not five years or ten years, but a thousand years into the future. You can do that. The ripples of our faithful love, our chesed, they go on for a thousand generations in ways that we might never see. Don't settle for anything less. Always keep a mind to the mission that Jesus is calling you to here, the reason that you are here, that this community of faith is here. Do the work. Love the world. Show them Jesus. And let those ripples go on for a thousand generations. Father, we're asking you right here as we come to the end of this book, there are so many lessons, things that we haven't even been able to get into yet, Lord, but, but even what we have seen with this, with this cursory look at this book, Father, we have been challenged and in some ways overwhelmed and in other ways encouraged. And we see ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the most ordinary of ways by loving people deeply, by following you with a reckless kind of abandon, by taking risks, having courage, and speaking your truth, and defending those who need it. Father, not simply calling for justice, but doing justice. Loving the unlovable, working with the needy and telling everybody why we do it. Because we have a redeemer. We know that our redeemer lives and we know what it cost him so that we might come home. Father, we are asking that you would make us these kinds of people more and more and more filled with the power of your spirit, courageous in thought and in deed, committed wholeheartedly to the grace, the unmerited favor that we have. We might tell the whole world of your love for them. Let us do this, Lord. Use us in this way and let the, the ripples go out to a thousand generations. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.